some of your neighbors will invite a friend in. Maybe it's a lie, even if it's a sin, they'll repeat the rumor again. Hello and welcome to episode 930 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast for baseball prospectus presented by our Patreon supporters and the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of TheRinger.com, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hey there. Today we are going to talk to someone who somehow has not been on any of the previous 929 episodes of this podcast. It's long overdue. Dave Cameron, managing editor and writer for Fangraphs. Hey, Dave. Hey, thanks for lifting the ban and allowing your competitor to come on. <laughs> yes, this is the, the final evidence of the thaw. Exactly. The, the, the right. We're all friends Fangraphs now. Rivalry. We've, had every, we've had every person who works for you on. I guess we were just waiting to see if you actually knew anything about baseball and <laughs> well, I don't, I don't though. <laughs> Your mistake. So your latest piece is uh, some wild speculation about the trade deadline. So we thought we would bring you on to wildly speculate about the trade deadline here. Awesome. And uh, one of the things I've always admired about you is that you are very willing to propose specific trades to, <laughs> to name names. Like yeah. when the rest of us, you know, wishy-washy baseball writers will like say something vague about someone being a buyer or a seller or, oh, maybe they need an outfielder or something. You will name the specific name, which, of course, then, you know, people can say that you were wrong about <laughs> for all eternity. But, you know, I'm sure that you're not any more wrong than anyone else, but I admire your willingness to uh, actually get specific and, and have a record that people can judge you on, and, and they do. Well, thank you. I, I, I kind of enjoy the speculative, uh, let's put things together, and, you know, even back to the USS Mariner days when I was trying to, like, get them to sign Vladimir Guerrero or do, like, crazy things, it always seemed more fun to me to kind of, like, put a specific name to it rather than just saying, like, they need a left-handed reliever, and there's 17 of them, you just pick which one you want. It seems like a, a little more interesting exercise to me if we say, they're going to get Xavier Cedeno. Obviously, we don't actually know that, but it's a, I don't know, I enjoy it a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's an admirable quality. Thank you. Before we get to the specifics, I want to ask a uh, big overarching question to the co question of who is buying and selling at this point. And sure. Ben and I did an episode a week ago looking at the wild card and what it means to be in the wild card race. Does that make you a buyer? Does that make you a holder? How much is a wild card spot really worth? And it used to be really simple. A wild card spot was the same as a division uh, crown for the most part. And if you were likely to make the playoffs that way, it was it didn't really matter which way you went. But now you have teams who are in the thick of a playoff race, quote unquote, but the prize is only one game. And we don't really know, Ben and I, I think, at least I don't really know how to value a, a playoff spot. I don't really know how to yeah. even display playoff odds yeah. uh, because of that. So when you look at a team that is more or less out of a division race, like say the Mets or the Tigers, but in the thick of a playoff race, how do you weigh that? Is that a playoff spot? Is is that a spot that you should be buying? Or is there just not enough uh, assurance that you're actually going to get a five-game series uh, to, to give anything from next year's team up? Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth something, but it's definitely worth a fraction of a you know, like a division title where you're kind of guaranteed that five-game series and a chance to advance. I think if you look at like a team like the Cardinals or the Pirates, who realistically they're chasing the Dodgers, who are probably a slightly better team than them. They're chasing the Marlins and the Mets, who are at least on par with them and ahead of them in the standings. And you're saying, okay, how much do I really want to give up for the right to maybe face Clayton Kershaw, Noah Syndergaard, or Jose Fernandez with my season on the line? Like that's not a great place to be. And I think like you have you owe it to your fan base if you're 
in contention for a wild card to not just give it up and say, we don't even want to try and get into that game. Because obviously in one game, anything can happen. The Phillies could beat Syndergaard on any given day. But I, I don't think you want to say, I'm going to give up one of my real valuable assets. So I think you kind of toe the line a little bit. And if you're the Cardinals or the Pirates or one of these teams, even the Tigers, you probably say, okay, I'm not going to trade Justin Wilson away. I might not trade Mark Melanson away. I'm going to keep together what I have, but I probably won't be like a significant buyer where I'm going to trade trade you know something that I really like for the future for the chance to go in and beat one of the best pitchers in baseball on one game. So I guess before we get into the specific teams, we should sort of set the scene for this deadline. How would you describe this deadline in terms of I guess the balance between buying and selling and also the amount of talent available. I think the weird thing about this deadline is we're going to see a ton of trades, I think. We're going to see a a large quantity of deals, and most of them are going to be like kind of yawners. Like, we don't have a David Price or a Johnny Cueto or a Cole Hamels this year, but what we have is a bunch of contenders who need like six guys. So, like, I have the Indians and the Rangers as two of my big buyers, and I have them both acquiring four players, where, like, normally I think the big buyer kind of just makes one big trade, or occasionally two, but I think we can see some teams making three, four, five separate deals to go get the kinds of things they need because we have a lot of flawed contenders, especially in the American League this year, where you look at it and be like, the Rangers are in first place with an average or below average offense and a terrible pitching staff. Like, how did we get here to the point where this is a first place team? But that's kind of what we have in the American League. We have a lot of parity in the National League. I think we have some teams like the Dodgers who have been wrecked by injuries. The Giants' bullpen's in trouble. They could add a couple pieces. We do have, I think we're going to see contenders make more moves than usual for pieces that they hope will add up to one good player like we've seen in the past. All right, so you've separated all the teams into different tiers based on how active you think they'll be. You've got a handful of big buyers, and the team at the top of the list is one that was like the smallest buyer last winter (laughs) and hasn't really hurt them much so far, but they do have some room to improve. So tell us about the Cleveland Indians. Yeah, I mean, you wrote about Jonathan Lucroy being the big target of the trade deadline in your first piece for Ringer or second piece Mm -hmm. for Ringer, I guess. Uh, And uh, kind of pointing out that this is still a star player and probably the best available player to move at the deadline. I think when you look at the Indians, you know, they, they've they said, hey, look, we're comfortable with Roberto Perez and we think Jan Gomes might come back, but those guys aren't Jonathan Lucroy. And with Michael Brantley potentially not coming back or who really knows what he's going to be if he comes back with a shoulder problem that sent him to the DL a couple times and shoulder problems linger, this is a team that probably deserves to make a real run. I mean, like when you look at their pitching staff, they look a lot like last year's Mets, right, with Kluber and Carrasco and Salazar and Bauer. You can dream on what they could be in October, but you also don't know what they're going to be next year or the year after that. And this could really be the Indians' best chance to win. So I think when you look at what they have and kind of their position where they have a strong lead in the division, so it's pretty likely they're going to get to the playoffs. If ever there was a time for the small market Cleveland team who just saw the basketball team uh, in their home market win a championship and try and get those fans to also jump on the baseball bandwagon, this is the time to do it. I know they like Clint Frazier and they like Bradley Zimmer, but they've got, you know, chips that the Brewers would want. The Brewers also have bullpen pieces that they could add. I think this is really the right time for the Indians to say, forget being a small market team, we're really going to push in and try and win the American League this year. And, you know, they recently got more bad news about Michael Brantley. And so everyone said, well, outfielders hurt, so they need to go get an outfielder. 
but you, yeah. I guess you have Coco Crisp in there. He's an outfielder, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but you don't think that the big addition will be outfielder? I guess just runs or runs, and you could upgrade elsewhere, and it helps you just as much. Yeah, I mean, I think when we look at the outfielders that are out there, like Jay Bruce, I think is uh, you know an okay player, but certainly nothing on the on the magnitude of Jonathan Lucroy. You could try and talk the Rockies out of Carlos Gonzalez, but teams have been trying to do that for four years, and they've never sold him. So I don't know that you want that to be your plan. It seems to me like. Luke Roy is the best available player. They can they can make the biggest substantial upgrade by putting him in their lineup. Uh, and you know if you get Will Smith, who's a good left-handed reliever, to upgrade the bullpen at the same time in that deal, it justifies giving up one of their top prospects in a way that if you're going after Bruce or a Carlos Beltran or something like that, probably not as as an important as an upgrade. Even if you look at it and say this is what we need, what you really need is just to outscore your opponents. And I think Luke Roy helps do that more than the other players. Yeah. So you have the Rangers next. So how are they going to get from the team that is? inexplicably good to a team that is actually really, really good. I think Rangers fans will continue to dislike me in the fact that I don't <laughs> think they're going to ever get to the point where they're, I mean, this roster to me is just very flawed. So I think they're in a position where they have to make upgrades just because of where they are in the standings, but they've got a lot of holes. I mean, after Cole Hamels and whatever, if, if Udarjevich is healthy, that rotation is atrocious. So I've got them getting Matt Moore from the Rays and Andrew Kashner from the Padres. I know having John Daniels and AJ Pillar trade together is not the most unique idea, uh, but it does fit in terms of giving them a couple of back-end starters with some upside. Moore's a guy they would control long-term, so maybe they would give up one of their younger prospects, maybe a Lewis Brinson, something like that, in order to get a guy they could have for multiple years. Um, and then I got him getting Carlos Beltran because I think he makes the most sense. I think Beltran's definitely going to go. Uh, if you look at the other American League teams who could use an outfielder slash DH, uh, there's probably not as much interest or, or need as there is in Texas. And then I've got him adding Jeremy Jeffress from the Brewers because they could really use some bullpen help as well. So I think that the Rangers are in a position where all four of those guys would be substantial upgrades and would give them a chance to really fight the Astros down the stretch, uh, even though they've got some pretty serious problems. So Moore is a guy who's under team control through 2019 with, with options. Yeah. And Jeffress is a guy who is under team control through 2020. And those aren't yeah. normally the kinds of guys that we see get traded in the summer. If they do, it tends to be in the offseason. And uh, right. they tend not to get traded all that much at all because rebuilding right. teams can still see them being good when they've been rebuilt. Do you think that there is sort of something about the free agent market that is going to create a seller's market for these guys who are available not just for the summer or not just for next year, uh, but well, well into the future? Because the Brewers and the Rays will both be, you know, at least envision themselves being good before either of those players can hit free agency. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the interesting changes where you see buyers saying, look, if we're going to value our prospects more, we're not going to necessarily want to trade them for like a Rich Hill type rental, uh, where you saw like the Red Sox say, look, we'll give Ben Anderson Espinosa for Drew Pomeranz because we can get him for a couple of years and not just this year. I think with the Rangers having some quality chips, that's probably going to incentivize them to make moves for guys they can control longer rather than going for rentals. And I think, like, to me, the Matt Moore kind of analogy would be when the when the Rays traded Wade Davis. He had team control left, but he wasn't really all that good. <laughs> like They looked at him and said, okay, we've got a couple option years, but given that what he was doing in the rotation for them, it wasn't a guarantee that those option years were going to be all that valuable or even that they would pick them up if he got injured. So I think you can look at more and say, you know, yeah, we have team control through 2019, but is Matt Moore right now worth $10 million in three years? Or should we project that as a super valuable thing that we want to hold on to? I mean, it's certainly possible. Obviously, Wade Davis turned into a really good pitcher. But I think when you look at, like, the Brewers with Jeffress and, you know, any relief pitcher projecting him four or five years down the line, or Moore, who's, you know, at this point, maybe an average starting pitcher, and you say, 
how much do I want to put long-term value on pitcher attrition four years from now? I think it's probably easier for those teams to sell that long-term value in exchange for something now and for the buying team to justify it because they're not getting a rental. I have forgotten what has been found, but I know, I think you, but certainly people have looked at whether you get more if you wait until the offseason to trade guys who have yeah. uh, many years remaining. What was the, what yeah. was the conclusion? So the, what I've looked at it is I actually found that the deadline price is about twice as high as the offseason price in terms of uh, kind of dollar, dollars per win if you look at it. Historically, I think with guys under team control, you're probably not going to see the same premium. It's more like 1.5x. It's still a pretty significant premium you get just because the buyers have more information that the guy is going to be available to them in the postseason than they do in the offseason. So I think with a guy like Moore or Jeffress, you're probably going to get more for them now because you're getting buyers who say, okay, I already know this guy's very likely to pitch for me in October. We're in the offseason. The buyers don't necessarily know that. They're going to discount for their lack of information. So the Dodgers just lost the best pitcher in the National League, and you have them replacing him with the best pitcher in the American <laughs> League, according to Billy Bean and according to Sam Miller. Yeah, Rich Hill's pretty good. And uh, he's not Clayton Kershaw, but he throws a lot of curveballs. So if you're going to miss a guy who throws a lot of curveballs, maybe you go get the American League version of the guy who throws a lot of curveballs. Uh, I do think that the A's are set up as a really interesting seller for a bunch of teams, not just the Dodgers, because they have, like, Josh Reddick, so, you know, maybe the best outfielder on the market, uh, depending on if Carlos Gonzalez is available, but I think he's definitely better than Jay Bruce or Carlos Beltran in terms of overall value. And Sean Doolittle, when he's healthy, is one of the best left-handed relievers in baseball. He's not currently healthy, but doesn't mean he won't come back this year, and he could be an interesting risk and another guy under team control for multiple years. So I think the A's are set up in a position where... It, whether it's the Dodgers or another team, they can package these three guys together and really get something kind of one piece back. I think the, one of the problems the A's have run into over the last few years is they've traded for a lot of bit pieces, right? Like obviously the Josh Donaldson trade has worked very poorly and they landed guys like Kendall Graveman in that deal where they said we're kind of betting on low upside quantity guys. We're going to trade one for four or five. I'm guessing the A's probably don't want to keep doing that and they might be more incentivized to say let's package three of our guys together and get you know, maybe Jose de Leon or one of the Dodgers' better prospects. And then you've got the Giants and the Nationals trading for bullpen upgrades, a new closer for the Nationals because that worked so well last time. Yeah, <laughs> It's what they do every summer. Yeah, I wonder what Jonathan Papelbon would do if he were demoted to setup man because as closer, he was choking people, <laughs> losing his job. He might have to elevate that to something worse. <laughs> yeah, Dave is, Dave is not exactly known for understatement, but quote, Jonathan Papelbon might not like getting moved out of the ninth <laughs> inning is like an all-timer. Yeah, I, I think I really am trying to find the new subtle Dave Cameron. It's a, it's a slow process. <laughs> well, I guess that's where Dusty Baker comes in handy or where he's <laughs> right. To, right? So Yeah, I mean, I think if, if you're Jonathan Papelbon, I can see if Aroldis Chapman comes in throwing 104, maybe you say, like, I realize I'm not as good as that. It might be easier for Papelbon to realize he's not as good as Aroldis Chapman than it was for Drew Storen to realize he wasn't as good as Papelbon. I think you're hoping that like the velocity just convinces Papelbon to take his eighth inning role and like it. So what are the team or teams that you are kind of being a wet blanket about doing something <laughs> big? Like their fans are hoping there's going to be a, a huge haul and you just don't see it. Yeah, I mean, I think the Cubs have got to be at the top of that list, right? I mean, they've been speculated for Miller or Chapman or Miller and Chapman. Uh, and I think the Cubs fans obviously look at this as potentially their best chance to win a World Series in 108 years but I think if the Cubs are really set on we're not trading Kyle Schwarber which it seems like they probably are 
I can see Brian Cashman saying, fine, you want to keep Kyle Schwarber? I want to keep Andrew Miller. I've got Miller for two more years after this. I don't have to move him, certainly. So I could see that there being a little bit of an impasse there and, and them not finding a deal. So if the, I think with the Mike Montgomery trade the other day, uh, to me, I read that as a little bit of a signal of the Cubs not thinking they were going to be able to land a guy like Miller and hedging their bets and saying, we're going to go get some kind of left-handed relief because we don't know if we can get the guy we want. And if they can't get Andrew Miller... That team is so good that I don't really know what else they do, right? Like, I was looking around for, like, okay, what would their backup plan be if they can't go get the guy they really want? And, like, I so I gave them Alex Colomay, who's a good reliever for the Rays, uh, but is, you know, a short track record guy and has a history of health problems. Certainly not an Andrew Miller-level reliever. He's also right-handed, which doesn't fit as well. But I think the drop-off in left-handed elite relievers after Miller and Chapman to the next tier is so severe that it's hard to justify for the Cubs giving up one of their you know good young prospects for uh, you know like a Will Smith who would have to be an in-division trade anyway Um, so I think with the Cubs it's just not easy to see if they don't trade for Miller what else they're going to do because that team is already really really good. What do you think is behind the refusal to move Schwarber? Is it that they actually see him being there for five years or just that uh, if he's healthy a year from now and, uh, you know, is putting up a 300, 400, 500 line, he's much more valuable as a trade piece? Yeah, but I think it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, I think they're probably realistic that he's not a left fielder for like the next 10 years. But if they think he can come back and be even a decent left fielder next year and hit like it sounds like they think he's going to hit. I mean, I wrote a piece yesterday kind of talking about how I see him as like a Mike Napoli type. But I think there is an argument to be made that he didn't strike out that much in the minor league leagues this could be a guy who's more of like a Lance Berkman type and if you think he's that uh, then I can see not wanting to trade him for a relief pitcher and if you think hey look you know even if he can only be a decent uh, you know, left fielder who catches, you know, once a week for us uh, and plays 130, 140 games, if he establishes himself as like a four-win player next year, making the league minimum, we could trade him for a whole heck of a lot more than Andrew Miller next summer. So you've got three AL East teams on your playoff odds with higher than 50% chances of making the playoffs, and all three are in your middle tier of buyers. So what do you see as the, the biggest weaknesses on the top AL East contenders or the ones most likely to be addressed? Yeah, the Orioles are like really the fascinating team because kind of like the Rangers, like their pitching staff is just a disaster, right? Like Kevin Gaussman's fine. Like he hasn't lived up to his potential, but at least he doesn't need to necessarily be replaced right now. And then you're kind of like hoping for Giovanni Gallardo's shoulder to stay all right. And like you're still starting Obalo Jimenez with an area of six. Yeah. Probably it's worse than the Royals rotations we've seen it's, that have succeeded, right? It's worse than that, I think. It's it's amazing that this team is in contention with this group of starting pitching. I mean, this has got to be one of the worst rotations of a playoff contender we've seen heading into the trade deadline in a very long time. Definitely worse than what the Royals had last year. And there's no Johnny Cueto for them to come save them. And they have no prospects to trade for a Johnny Cueto if there was. So I've got them getting Jorge De La Rosa and Ricky Nolasco in what has to be like the saddest combination of deadline acquisitions for any contender in history but those guys might actually be better than what they have which is really scary when a rockies outcast and a twins outcast are are upgrades for a contender it's kind of amazing yeah and i think the blue jays situation is really fascinating because it really hinges on aaron sanchez right like he's developed into a much better starter than i expected uh and i think at this point it looks like he might even be their number one starter ahead of marcus stroman so if you think you're gonna 
kind of abandon your preseason idea of moving him to the bullpen, then maybe you need to trade for bullpen help. But if you're really not going to let Sanchez throw more than 180 or 190 innings this year, then you need to move him to the bullpen sooner than later because he's already at 130. So realistically, then they'd have to probably go try, try and trade for a starting pitcher and maybe like a guy like Rich Hill would fit for them instead. All right. And you've got the Mets and the Marlins in there too. I suppose there's nothing you think they could do that could help them catch the Nationals, but this is a, a wild card oriented move. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when you look at like the, the Marlins clearly need a starting pitcher, I guess they could go for Rich Hill, but is, is Rich Hill going to get them to catch the Nationals? Probably not. Same thing with the Mets, right? Like they've just had a bunch of injury problems have really derailed their season. Um, and they're on the position player side, they're actually a little bit crowded, especially now that they don't have room for Conforto playing anywhere. So they're not going to trade for an outfielder. Uh, there's no real center fielder out there that's better than Juan Lagares. Um, so they can trade for pitching, but they've got Zach Wheeler coming back. It's like the Mets are a little bit like the Cubs in that it's not easy to see what they're going to do because there's no big move out there for them to make. So I've got them getting a couple bullpen pieces, but right, it's, I don't necessarily see, even if the Mets really wanted to push in on this year, I don't know how they would do it. All right. And then moving on to the, there are just a few teams that you see sort of standing pat that are either in contention or kind of on the fringes of contention, the, the Astros, the Cardinals, the Pirates, the Tigers, the Royals. So it's a, a combination of either not really being in a position where they need to do something or just being too far out to really make it worth doing something. I mean, I think of the, that group, the Astros are the one who could really move themselves. And, you know, I mean, like potentially they could even make a play for a Chris Archer's Chris Sale. They could really try and make a big move because they've got now excess position players after signing Ulyeski Guriel. If they're saying he's going to be at third base in two to three weeks, well, what are you going to do with Alex Bregman, who was supposed to move to third base because Carlos Correa was blocking him at shortstop? So now they've had Bregman playing the outfield. Uh, but, you know, Colby Rasmus isn't atrocious and they've got George Springer in right and we don't know if Bregman can play center and Carlos Gomez is okay like I think the Astros are a team that certainly could kind of make the surprise deal and blow the Rays away or the White Sox away and and make a big splash but I don't know that you necessarily want to expect that especially with as good as Bregman's hitting in the minors this is the kind of guy you don't see traded really uh, so I kind of put them in that in that scenario because I don't know what they would do if they're not going to make a big move but with the Cardinals and Pirates Tigers and Royals I think they're all kind of like that 500 team you could probably get to throw in the Seattle Mariners in there too of like good enough to not totally blow it up but not good enough to justify as Sam was asking earlier like if we're just playing for a wild card spot like how much do we really want to give up is this even a playoff spot or are we just extending our season by one game uh for no real reason whatsoever and i think you know the royals obviously as defending world series champs they're not going to tear it down after a, a bad start to the season but at the same time you look at that rotation it's almost as bad as baltimore's uh their offense isn't doing that well it's hard to see how kind of the royals and tigers would fix themselves at this deadline when the kind of their second and third tier available players in order to make a real run and say, okay, now we think we're as good as Boston or Houston or, you know, one of these teams that's going to get the wild card spot. Okay. And so with the sellers, we've talked about this on the podcast in the past, but it's, you know, every day there's a new article about what the White Sox should do or what the Yankees should do. These yeah. are these teams that are kind of in this strange in-between place where they're not so far out of the wild card, but no one really thinks they're right. going to make a run. And yet they're not really at any identifiable, identifiable point in their kind of window or arc of contention. They They could be okay next year. They could be bad. It's hard to say what they should do. And so now the White Sox are sort of saying some stuff about selling, but it sounds like you're not expecting a, a complete sell-off from either of these teams. 
Yeah, I mean, I think like it's an interesting kind of setup that baseball's created with this second wild card and with kind of the parity that baseball's in is I think it's difficult for a team like the White Sox or the Yankees to say, look, we can't go on a run. I mean, I think uh, Ken Rosenthal mentioned uh, today that the Rangers were below 500 last year when they traded for Cole Hamels. They kind of thought that, saw that as a, a move for 2016. They were just doing it in advance. And then all of a sudden they won the division <laughs> because they got hot down the stretch. And I think if you have ownership looking at that and saying, hey, look, if it's only going to take you know 88 89 90 wins to win one of these divisions which it might uh why do we want to punt why do we want to give up the second half of the season if we could just go on a tear and all of a sudden you know middle of august we're sad that we traded away one of our best players because we won 10 in a row so i think with this kind of compacting of the standings especially in the american league it's difficult for these teams to really just pull the plug and say we want to go the way of the astros and just blow this thing up and be bad for a few years because it's just not that tall of a ladder to climb anymore so i don't think that the the white Sox have the stomach to trade sale or quintana i could be wrong and certainly this would be the deadline to do it at because there's no other ace out there and they would probably get a bigger return for them now than they ever would but it's just hard for me to see especially the White Sox kind of pushing in, buying Frazier over the offseason, giving Robertson all that money. So for them to reverse course at this point and say, okay, now we're really going to tear it down midseason, that feels more like an offseason decision to me. Yeah. And then there are some teams that are in the typical seller's position in the standings, but I guess they've already sold. It's yeah. kind of, they've plundered their rosters to such an extent that there just isn't all that much left really. And there are a few teams that are exceptions to that. You mentioned the Rockies, for instance, who have at least one guy that teams would want, but you, as you say, you've stopped trying to figure the Rockies out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Rockies, I think, probably should be a team that's really active. I think even beyond Carlos Gonzalez, they should probably be trying to trade, you know, Charlie Blackman. They should probably be listening to offers for guys like Jake McGee, who I don't still don't know why they acquired in the first place. Uh, they should probably be listening to offers for, you know, like uh, everyone not named Nolan Arenado. I mean, the Rockies should be looking at it and saying, look, the Giants are really good. The Dodgers are a behemoth. Uh, we're a long way off. We should be, you know, trying to get as young as possible and build around Arenado and Gray. But it seems like they're maybe also kind of stuck in this, we're just good enough to not dilute our, or to dilute ourselves into thinking that we shouldn't sell. So we're just going to hang around 75 to 80 wins forever. I don't, I don't really know what that gets you in baseball anymore but they seem to enjoy doing it okay so if you were going to make one classic cameron call of uh, <laughs> one specific player to one specific team which one would you feel most confident about oh man that's a good question i don't i didn't really feel super confident about any of these i think like if i looked at one i might say david robertson to the giants i think uh, bobby evans and brian sabian have both said over the last few days like we want a dominant ninth inning guy we don't want a second tier relief pitcher uh we you know we don't want like some pitch to contact guy who's just going to come in and pitch the seventh inning we want like some guy who can hand the ball to in the ninth inning and say you're going to go strike everybody out and we're going to walk off the field but I don't necessarily know that they're going to be the high bidders for Chapman. And if Miller doesn't move, Robertson's kind of the only other guy out there that you could say that about. So I guess if I had to like make one Cameron call, it's like the Giants are definitely trading for David Robertson. You hear it here first. I guarantee it, uh, except for I'm going to be wrong, of course. The way this is basically framed is that there are teams that are buyers and there are teams that are sellers. And then there are the players that the sellers are going to be selling to the buyers. And for most of you know, trade deadline history, the return on the pieces that you sell is prospects. You don't even have to yeah. write the second half of the trade. Right. What are you going to get back? Prospects. Yeah. And in the last few years, that has sort of changed. Teams that you think of as buying are sending back actual major leaguers to the teams that you think of as sellers because, you know, they're under cost control. And you wouldn't have gone into any of these trade deadlines, for instance, thinking you want to assess this was going to get moved or maybe even Drew Smiley was going to get moved. You wouldn't have thought that Brett Laurie or D Gordon was going to get moved. Right. 
But those are the kinds of players that sellers are asking for back from buyers. So do you see any players like that who are established major leaguers that um, are good ball players that people know exist already, even if they're not prospect hounds, uh, who you think might get moved to to some of these sellers this deadline? Yeah, man, that's a fascinating question. I think like the one guy we haven't talked about is Julio Tehran, right? Where the Braves are putting a really high price on him, and it's it, you know kind of what's been reported publicly is they don't want prospects in return. Their position is, look, we have a good young major league starting pitcher. We're not going to trade him for some guy in A ball or some guy we're not going to see for three years. If you want a Tehran, you got to give us like two of your better young players as well because we want guys we can stick on the big league roster. I think they're hunting for a guy, maybe not necessarily with big league experience but a guy like that Alex Bregman where if you could get a guy who you traded for him he's not necessarily a key component of the Astros team but you said look we can just stick him on our roster tomorrow Bregman doesn't need any more time in the minor leagues we can basically call him a major league player I think that's the kind of guy that I could maybe see uh, if the Astros say you know what We've got Altuve having this crazy monster year. Uh, we think this could really be our year. We think the Rangers are weak and we can run away with this division in the, in the second kind of the final two months of the year. Uh, we don't really know where Bregman's going to play anyway. Maybe he has more value to a team that can st- play him at shortstop than if we have to stick him in the outfield. Maybe there's an efficiency here where we can trade him and get you know multiple things back that can really help us long term at positions we need. So I think if I was going to identify one guy who I would think kind of fits that mold of guys you didn't used to see traded. Bregman might be it because he can't play shortstop in Houston. Now he might not even be able to play third base in Houston. Uh, but I'd still be pretty surprised. I mean, just how often do you see the top prospect in baseball who's basically big league ready and could be playing for the Astros this weekend? You don't you don't see those kinds of guys traded that often. But if there's going to be pick, pick one guy like that, I think he is probably the most likely to go. And Jerkson Profar is maybe another guy that you could see being moved who fits that profile. You don't think that they will trade Jerkson Profar. How confidently did you write those words? Not that confidently. I mean, I think they could. I think they could dangle Profar. But the interesting thing with Profar is he was hurt for so long that he's already burned through a good chunk of his service time, right? So he's a 23-year-old with like not a lot of track record of big league success who's eligible for arbitration this winter. Like that's an odd combination of things. Like if you're if you're a buyer, like oh, I'm getting this really good young shortstop who I don't totally know can play shortstop because he's played all over the field this year and he's had so many arm problems that I you know I can't be 100% confident that he can play shortstop. And even if I'm right, he's going through arbitration. And he's going to get expensive, and then I have to give him a contract extension in like six months. And so I don't necessarily know that he's the long-term asset that his talent and his kind of prospect profile would suggest. Because if you're a buyer, you're not getting five, six, seven years of control. You're getting three, and they're the expensive three if he's good. So I think they're going to keep Profar just because he's he's not a great fit for a rebuilding team. Uh, And, you know, realistically, with Prince Fielder being out for the season and Mitch Moreland being Mitch Moreland, they should just keep him because he's one of their nine best starting position players. All right. Well, we are a mere 10 days away from being able to scrutinize everything you said and find all the mistakes and errors and point them out to you. I'm very excited for that. <laughs> all right. Well, we will deliver a full <laughs> report on your errors in a couple of weeks. All right. So you can read Dave at Fangraphs. You can listen to him humor Carson Sestuli on Fangraphs Audio every week. And you can follow him on Twitter at DCameronFG. Thank you, Dave. No problem. Are we going to have our annual fight at Saber Seminar this year? Yeah, well, Sam and I will both be there, oh. so I will will do something. Okay. I don't know. Maybe if you we're guys will tag, a... tag team me this year. I'm gonna have yeah, to like, sure. bring some other Fangraphs guy to even this out. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> All right, good talking to you. All right, thanks, guys. All right, that is it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to Patreon.com/slash/EffectivelyWild. Today's five Patreon supporters are Jens Wakerly, Aaron Woofter. 
Harold Walker, David Cohen, and Ronald Januszewski. Thanks to all of you. You can buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, our wild experiment building a new kind of baseball team. Go to theonlyruleisithastowork.com for more information. And please leave us a review on Amazon and Goodreads if you like the book. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can also subscribe to my new solo project, The Ringer MLB Show. Our first episode went up this week. I talked to two former Effectively Wild guests, Travis Sachik and Michael Bauman. I think it went pretty well. If you like this show, you will probably like that show. So I hope you'll all follow my work at my new home, The Ringer. You can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index by going to BaseballReference.com and using the coupon code BP. Send us emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectives.com or by messaging us through Patreon. This is a momentous day. We're ending the week on a multiple of five for the first time in ages. So savor that while you have a wonderful weekend, and we will talk to you soon. Can I make it-